Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning and be able to worship with all of you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we are going to be spending our time today. If you do not have a Bible and you would like to follow along, you don't have an app on your phone, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks. And Genesis is the very first book of the Old Testament. So if you start there and just kind of work your way forward, you'll hit Genesis 2 pretty quick. If you do not own a Bible and you would like to own the one that you are holding that is, was ours, you can have that. Uh, we would be glad for you to have that because we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. <clears throat> Several years ago, a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called Back to Freedom and Dignity. And in that book, Schaefer quotes several lines from Shakespeare in which Hamlet marvels at the nature of human beings. He marvels at the fact that though human beings were created from dust, they have all of these amazing capabilities. Here's what Hamlet says. He says, what a piece of work is man." How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in in apprehension, how like a god. Those are the words that Shakespeare puts into Hamlet's mouth. But then Schaefer goes on to contrast that perspective with the perspective of B.F. Skinner, who is one of the most influential psychologists of the 20th century. Skinner was a proponent of something called behaviorism. You probably learned about that in some class somewhere along the way. But B.F. Skinner, who was a proponent of behaviorism, wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity, in which he argued that the very ideas of Human freedom and dignity were ideas that needed to be, in in his words, abolished. You see, Skinner argued instead that human beings are entirely the product of conditioning. And that conditioning that we of which we are a product occurs both before we are born and after we are born. We are we are the products of our genetic conditioning and the predispositions that, that come along with our DNA, and we are products of our environmental conditioning that we experience. To Skinner, humans are more like an advanced version of Pavlov's dog, conditioned to salivate whenever we hear a bell because it makes us associate that sound with food. And so Schaefer says that whereas Shakespeare's Hamlet looked at humans and said, how like a god, Skinner looked at humans and reversed the last two letters of that phrase and said, how like a dog. Now, there's no denying the impact of conditioning, both genetic and environmental. You and I are, in many ways, the product of our genes. As they unfold and unspool, we have all sorts of 
predispositions and predilections. And of course, we are in many ways products of our environment, are we not? More than we'd like to believe, you think the way you do and choose the things that you're going to do and have the values that you have because of the family that you were raised in, the particular time period in history that you were born in, and the nation in which you happen to reside. Our behaviors are certainly shaped by those factors. But Hamlet was closer to the mark than Skinner. His exclamation, how like a God, is no blasphemy, but the expression of a foundational truth of the Christian faith that we are made in the image and likeness of God and thus possess an inherent freedom and dignity that nothing else in all creation can lay claim to. The Bible teaches us this in the opening chapters of Genesis, and this morning we're going to be looking at some verses in Genesis chapter 2. I will remind you that Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 starts our first major section in the book. Everything from 1-1 up to 1-3 has been a sort of of introduction. It has been a bird's-eye view of why there is something rather than nothing and how it all got here. It has, it has, it is, it is uh, uh, zoomed way out to see all of everything. But I told you that, that there's this phrase that the author of Genesis uses over and over again throughout the book that are, are indicators that we are at a new section, and that phrase is, these are the generations. These are the generations. And these are the generations is our author's way of telling us hey, this is the story of the thing that I'm about to introduce to you. Here's what happened with that. So Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 is the first of those markers. And what Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 and then the following verses are going to do is we've been, we've been zoomed way out. Now we're going to go zoom way in and focus on one particular aspect of God's creation. And what we're going to do is focus on what you might call the crown jewel of God's creation. What's the crown jewel of creation? You. Human beings. People that have been made in God's image and likeness. And here's what I want to do with this. What I'd like to do is I'd like to pull out three statements about God's creation of human beings from our text. I'm going to look at two of them today and then one of them next week, Lord willing. These are two state, three statements about God's creation of human beings. And then as we look at each statement, I'd like us to look at an implication of each one of those statements. In other words, if this is true, then this. Okay, does that make sense? That's what we want to do. So we're going to look at the, the first two statements and their implications this week. The first one is this, God created humans with intentionality. God created humans with intentionality. Look with me at how God describes the creation of the first human being in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 5. The Word of God says this, 
when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man and the man became a living creature. Now, there are two features here in these verses that we just read that I believe point to the intentionality with which God created human beings. The first in the first feature, the Bible here tells us that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And that Hebrew word for formed is a word that is often, or sometimes I should say, used in the Old Testament to describe God's work as a potter. Now, how many of you have ever thrown a clay pot? And by thrown it, I don't mean picked it off your end table and thrown it at someone. But how many of you have ever made a bowl or a pot? Okay, we've got a few people here who have done that. And the people who have done it will attest it's, it's harder than it looks, isn't it? I used to work uh, in, in a janitorial service, and one of the things that we, at, for my school, uh, my college, and one of the things that, one of the places that I had to clean was the art building. And I'd be there late at night because that's when we cleaned, and there would be students there working late at night, and they had the, the potter's wheel, and they had the clay and all the stuff that you need to do that, and as I, was, as I was watching them do it, one of them asked me if I would like to give it a try, and so I said, of course, brimming with confidence, it does not look hard, right? And the mangled mess that I made immediately made me realize that that is a lot more difficult than it looks. The process requires a lot of skill and coordination. You've got you've to pump that pedal to keep that wheel spinning at just the right speed, not too fast and not too slow. You've got to have just the right amount of, of water on your hands so that you can keep the clay kind of wet so that it doesn't dry out, but not too wet so that it's not falling in on itself. And then you need a steady hand that keeps everything in proportion. You need to get that lump of clay right in the center of that wheel so that as you start to press your hand down into it, and as you start to form the rim, it, will, it won't be one of these things, which is the best I could do. And that's the best I could do for a few seconds. So it's no surprise that the Bible would evoke this kind of imagery for us when it speaks of God as a potter throughout the rest of the Bible, and when it sort of evokes that image, when it talks about the fact that, 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 that God forms human beings. Of course, God doesn't have hands. He's a spirit. But if he had hands, what the text would be communicating is that God moves in close and gets his hands dirty. It is an amazing thing to see a skilled potter make something beautiful and useful from a nondescript lump of clay. There's a second feature which points us to the intentionality with which we have been created.
created. And that is the fact that the text tells us that God breathed into the first man's nostrils the breath of life so that he becomes a living being, a living creature. Gordon Wenham, writing on this passage, says, Man is more than a God-shaped piece of earth. Uh, He has within him the gift of life that was given by God himself. Now, we've seen in chapter 1, there are many kinds of living creatures. And each one of those living creatures is a living creature precisely because of God's creative act. But only of humans does the Bible give us this this, this, uh, this visual picture of God breathing into us the breath of life. What I think it's doing here, if I could use this word, it's, it's, there's an intimacy in God's intentionality in creating human beings. It's, it's, like, it's like the text is trying to tell us He's moving in close. There's special attention given to these creatures in particular. Of course, this image wouldn't have been in the mind of the original readers. It couldn't have been, but the image that comes into my mind, the illustration that comes into my mind, is that of giving CPR. If you're going to give CPR to somebody, what do you have to do? You can't do it from a distance, right? You've got to get up close and personal You have to tilt that person's head back and pinch their nose, and you have to form a seal over that person's mouth so that you can put your breath in their lungs. Now, God here is not reviving. He is animating life. But that's a picture of what God does, putting His creative breath in our receiving lungs in every single one of us here without exception is breathing in and out the creative breath of God. This intentionality that we see here in these opening chapters of Genesis is reflected centuries later in the Psalms. Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14 says this. This is This is the psalm writer speaking to God in a sense. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The author of this psalm recognizes that he is more than the product of of biological processes. Now, you and I, the, the average, the average um, elementary school student now probably knows more about biological processes than the author of this psalm. The amount of information we have available to us now understanding DNA sequencing and the way cells work and, and we can actually We actually know all the stages of development of a child in its mother's womb in a way that that the vast majority of human beings throughout human history have never even scratched the surface of. 
and we can explain all the pieces of it and all the processes of how it works. But at the end of the day, what the Bible is telling us here is that standing behind all that is not a scientist, but an artist. And every single one of you is his work of art, whether you see yourself that way or not. He said that we're looking at statements about God's creation of human beings and that we want to understand an implication of each one of these statements. And so here it is, the fact that God created humans with intentionality serves to highlight our value. The fact that God created human beings with intentionality serves to highlight our value. The fact that God's formed us, that He's breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, and then if we pull from the preceding chapter, which tells us that God made human beings in His image as His representatives on earth, all of those things combined together to show us our value. So let me say this. Don't allow an undue emphasis on the doctrine of depravity take away from the fact that humans are magnificent creatures. If your view of depravity prevents you from seeing that, your view of depravity is wrong. You can search that out for yourself more. But there are all kinds of things in the Scripture, all kinds of statements that that the Scripture makes that we have to hold at the same time or we get off track. We veer off in one direction or another. And this is one of those things. You must hold the doctrine of depravity and the doctrine of the fact that humanity has been made in the image of God. Those things have to be held together at all times or we will miss important things for us. You and I live each day with God's breath within us. C.S. Lewis talks about the importance, the, the magnificence of human beings well in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, which I've quoted on many occasions here. But here's something that he says in that sermon. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This ought to change the way we see each other. When you get off the 295 exit to Blanding, and you pull up next to a rail-thin girl, 
a sign and a cup. What do you see? Do you see someone burn out? Somebody who's made their bed and they're going to have to go ahead and lie in it? Or do you think you might be able to see what God sees? A magnificent creature made in his image. God created every single human being without exception, with intentionality, and it highlights our value. Not because of us, but because of what he has put in us. There's a second statement that I want to draw out for you this morning, and it's this. God created humans with responsibilities. God created humans with responsibilities. We see this as well in in chapter 2. And we've already seen in verse 5 that there's a note there that that there was no one to to work the ground. There's no one to till the ground. And then those responsibilities are further highlighted in verses 15 to 17. So if you're there in Genesis 2, let's read verses 15 to 17 together. It says, The Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, if you have been with us for the past few weeks, you'll remember that I've said on a, on a number of occasions that God gives Adam both a task and a test. The test is something that we'll talk about more when we get to the next chapter, although we've already spent some time on it. But the fact that God sets out something that that the man is forbidden to do tells us that, that humans have a responsibility to live in a moral fashion. The universe reflects not only the uh, 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 a, a unified natural order, but the universe also reflects a moral order. And the reason the universe reflects a moral order is because it was created by a perfectly holy moral creator. The first humans had both the responsibility and the ability to live in line with this moral order. At this point in human history, Adam is able to choose the right over the wrong. That's changed. But at this point, that's where he's at. And God's desire for humanity was that they choose to live in willing obedience with the moral will of the Creator in the way that He designed the universe. So that's the test. That's a responsibility to live in line with God's moral expression of Himself in His creation. But what I want to spend a little bit more time on this morning is the fact that humanity has also, was also given a task. We've already seen it mentioned in chapter 1. 
And it's been mentioned in a variety of ways there in chapter 1, but this task has been referred to by theologians sometimes as the dominion mandate. You may have heard of the dominion mandate. And that terminology is taken from the fact that in both uh, uh, verse 26 and verse 28 of chapter 1, one of humankind's responsibilities is to exercise dominion over the world that has been created. Of course, it should come as no surprise to us knowing that, that chapter 2 would give us a little bit more information about what exactly having dominion looks like, because the text tells us that Adam is put in the garden to work it and to keep it. This is the idea of cultivating. If you've ever been to gardens somewhere, whether it's here in the United States or maybe you've been traveling abroad and you've seen some of the magnificent gardens that have been created, the, the, the ways that, that people are able to create these topiaries where they're able to shape these bushes into figures. So there's, there's all sorts of amazing things that can be done, and none of that stuff happens by accident, does it? You can't kind of shuffle up all the, the seeds that you want in your garden in a bag and kind of throw it out there, and boom, a beautiful garden appears. You've got to cultivate it takes work. And this is, what, this is what God puts the humans in the world to do. They are to cultivate in this garden that God has set up as a sort of template for them, but they also have the responsibility of being fruitful and multiplying, which means that there's a very real sense in which they're to make the rest of the earth Eden. They're supposed to go throughout the earth and they're supposed to harness these resources and use it, and cultivate it, and work it, and learn about it, all of that for the glory of their Creator. Now, I'll say a few things about that in just a moment, but before I do, I want to make a brief aside, so pause, and let me make my little brief aside, because we don't really have time to talk about this, but I want to mention it. As a brief aside, these concepts of working and keeping are, I believe, the foundation of our ecological responsibility as Christians. It has been my observation that Christians have sometimes overreacted to the ecological concerns of our present day. But I wonder sometimes if our reactions, if our concerns are driven more by not wanting to be like them, whoever them is, then they are shaped by a biblical worldview. And the truth of the matter is, we have been put here as stewards of these resources, and we have a responsibility to work and keep and care for them rather than pillage and abuse. The fact that a new creation is coming does not give us a right to drive this one like a rental. Got it? Let's think in biblical categories. Unpause. Having dominion is also expressed this way in verses 19 and 20. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So this is another aspect of, of the dominion mandate. This is, this is representing or, or, or showing us that, that humanity has a responsibility to care for the animals, to, has the right to name these animals. So I've said... Our statement, God created humans with responsibilities. Now the implication. God created humans with responsibilities, and that highlights our purpose. Our purpose in life is to live within God's moral order, as morally made beings, and to exercise dominion over the creation of God that He has placed us in. Now, spoiler alert, stuff goes bad. (laughs) We move from a space where we're able to choose the right to a place where we are unable really to choose the right. It is not to say that we're never capable of doing anything good but that we are, never, we are not able, we are unable to live in conformity with God's moral will. And just none of us are able to do it. And we live in a world that is broken. But let me say a few things about this dominion mandate. I believe that in many ways this dominion mandate is hardwired into the very fabric of our beings by our Creator. It's why we want to do things like climb Mount Everest. Do you know how tall Mount Everest is? I don't. (laughs) But I know that if you climb Mount Everest, you will be at the same height as the height that commercial airliners fly. It costs between $30,000 and $45,000 to climb Mount Everest. Between your permits and your equipment, and the people that you have to hire, and all sorts of things like that, you are going to be parted with a pretty good chunk of change, which is why we have not yet done it as a church activity. (laughs) The journey will take you approximately 60 days. The air is so thin that a very, very, very small percentage of the population can do it without an oxygen tank. There is risk of avalanches, storms, hypothermia, frostbite, heart attacks, falling, and so many other things. So with all that expense and all that time and all that danger, why in the world do we climb Mount Everest? And the answer is very simple, because we can. Why are there cave explorers on YouTube, who I've watched, who will wriggle themselves through crevices that are so narrow that they have to take their helmets off because their heads won't fit sideways through? What is the payoff, you ask? 
from wriggling through one of these crevices to see the cavern behind it? What's the payoff? There is no payoff. There's nothing in there. I've watched the videos. I was hoping there would be diamonds in there or, you know, a treasure box that some, you know, someone had figured out how to get in there. There's nothing in there. Why do they do that? Because they can. They want to know what's there. Why do we send people to the moon? The moon is boring. There's literally nothing to do on the moon. Now, it's an amazing feat. I just watched a thing about Apollo 11. It's an amazing thing that we were able to put a person on the moon. All that's amazing, but, but actually being there, there's literally nothing to do. There's no Chick-fil-A's on the moon. And we're going to send somebody to Mars, and there's nothing to do there either. I've seen those pictures. Why do we do that stuff? I think that's hardwired into us. I think God created us to to go further, to see more, to climb higher. Ever thought about the first guy that was looking at a horse and said to his buddy, I bet you I can ride that thing. And then he fell off, of course, got bucked off and said, no, I bet in a few days I'll, I'll be able to. And now, we have people that are trained to break a horse so that you can put a child on that thing and it'll take it around. That's amazing. What about the people standing on the edge of the ocean in Hawaii and said, see that 50-foot wave? I bet I could paddle on a stick out there and ride that whole thing down. And they do. If that's not the dominion mandate, I don't know what is. Farmers are fulfilling the dominion mandate when they cultivate the land in such a way that it produces crops. Scientists are fulfilling the dominion mandate when they sequence DNA. Artists are fulfilling the dominion mandate when they take a block of marble and turn it into something beautiful. We are fulfilling the dominion mandate when we free climb a cliff or invent technology that makes it possible for people in Australia to watch what's happening in this room right now. We fulfill the dominion dominion mandate when we push a satellite out into space. Your child is fulfilling the dominion mandate when they draw a stick figure version of your family or create a fort in the woods. You are fulfilling the dominion, dominion, I can't say that, the dominion mandate when you turn a bowl on a lathe. You're fulfilling the dominion mandate when you when you come up with a new uh, thing of, of, uh, of ingredients to make a new recipe for dinner, all of this is hardwired into us because we were made in God's image. It's like God put us in, we, in, all, the, in all the darkness of the world and all the difficulty that's here and all the things that are just totally jacked up about it. We've got to remember that our Creator put us almost like in this beautiful sandbox, and said, I made you in my image and likeness. Figure it out. Build stuff. See if you can fly. Grow things. Paint things. Invent things. Do all that stuff. 
because of the people that God has made us to be. And we do it all on a small scale. I mean, you may not be climbing Mount Everest anytime soon, but that thing that you do all the time, the thing that you make or build, is the image of God in you, the purpose that you pursue. Now, we're almost done here. But what we want to do is, is ask the question, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with the good news of Jesus? I've alluded to this already, but you'll see in the next chapter if you don't know. Human beings are corrupted by sin. Depravity is real, and each one of us carry it within us. We also live in a world corrupted by sin so that sometimes the rocket that gets sent to the moon doesn't make it. Sometimes the person drowns surfing that wave. We all know that on every level, it's broken. The moral categories, the moral lane that God created for us to run in, we look at it and say, no thanks, I'll be doing that. We live outside of our created purpose. And this is where the good news of Jesus comes in. And this is important for us to note. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news not only of forgiveness of sins, but the, go- but the gospel of Jesus Christ is also a demonstration of our value and a restoration of our purpose. So, the good news of Jesus is amazing. Okay? It's, it's, it's the good news that sinners, separated from God by their sin, incurring His wrath, can be reconciled, restored, and forgiven. And it would be great if that's all it was. It's more than that. We need to remember, I said... That the, good, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a demonstration of our value. Now, some of us are immediately saying, oh, wait a minute, I don't like that. That doesn't sound depraved enough. And I like it super depraved. <laughs> our value to God is seen in the fact that He sent His Son to save us which, by the way, he wasn't obligated to do. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14 says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. God rescues His image bearers. We're valuable not because of something hidden inside us, not because we're so lovable, but because each one of us bear that image, and God's coming for it. And Jesus tells us stories that are meant to underscore this fact, stories like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to to go after the one. Joseph, helpfully, took some of my time but preached that part of the sermon this morning. 
And, and we didn't coordinate that. But you might think, you know, Jesus, if, 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 if Jesus is, is after sinners and he doesn't really care about the sinners, they don't really have any value to him, but it's like, here's a little grace, here's a little forgiveness, then what's, what's losing one matter? You got 99. But the Bible tells us a different story. The Bible tells us that Jesus goes after the one because the one is valuable. It's been purchased by his blood. So let's believe in depravity. Let's get off the whole, well, we're just trash to God. Not so. And if that's the if that's the, the imagery that we come away with, we need to do a better job reading our Bibles. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not only a demonstration of our value, but it is a restoration of our purpose. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15, Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. It's, the Bible doesn't just say in that verse, it's, it's not just that we might live, which would be wonderful, but that we might live for Him. So that's a statement of purpose, isn't it? Not just that we might live, but that we might live for Him. The same passage says, if anyone is in Christ, he is, it's going to pull imagery from Genesis, a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And so Christian person here this morning, you need to take away from this what's hidden in the very opening chapters of Genesis that you matter to God. You are valuable to Him. He has purchased your salvation with the blood of His Son. And you need to be reminded that you have, a re- that you have been given a restored sense of purpose. No longer are we we living for ourselves, making a name for ourselves, accumulating for ourselves, getting accolades for ourselves, doing all the things that we feel like we need to do to make our lives matter for the five minutes we exist. We are restored, and reconciled, and now we do the things that we do with a renewed sense of purpose for Him and His glory. So I just want to say to you, to someone who might be here this morning who does not know Jesus, we would invite you this morning to receive him by faith. The world is broken, and you're broken, and you are separated from God. But the good news that I read from 1 John 4 and 14 is that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, which means that if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you will experience the love of your Creator, which fills you with a sense of value. And you will experience a renewed sense of 
correct purpose in a way that you have never known. And I want to pray that you meet that Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truths that we have been able to just briefly think about today. We thank you for, frankly, the brilliance of Genesis, that there are so many truths tucked away into these opening chapters that have so many implications for our lives. I pray for the person who may be here this morning who doesn't know Christ. I pray that you would give them eyes of faith to see and a heart to believe. I pray that they would turn away from their sins now and turn in faith to Christ and be saved. It's in his name I pray. Amen.